Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Hello and welcome to The Mentor. I'm Mark Boris. This week I'm going to be talking to George Cambosis. He is the professional lightweight boxer, Australian champion at the moment, currently ranked number three in the world. you just got to get a perspective about this. To be number three in the world in the lightweight division is an incredible achievement. So George started out boxing as a kid in high school as a way to build his confidence in the face of being bullied. I can't believe that, but he was overweight and he was bullied. He also tried to take on the boxing because it was a good off-season training thing for him to become much fitter for his rugby league because he loved his rugby league. His aptitude to this sport combined with his passion, perseverance, and quite frankly, his incredible strength of character, like his incredibly strong-minded individual, quickly led him to having hundreds of amateur fights and multiple national and international tournaments where he did very well. Obviously, he became a professional fighter. He very strategically worked his way through all the processes to win, to keep winning. He's 18 and 0, he's never been beaten, and he's on his way to becoming the world champion. Earlier this year, George started a business called Ferocious Promotion, signing and managing young fighters coming through who haven't got support with the goal to negotiate a bigger percentage for fighters. I'm going to ask George about the story, about how did he put together the strategy, along with his dad and the support team he has, to get from where he was in the Shire to fighting on the big stage against the biggest names in the world today. And why having a thorough understanding of all his fighters and all his audience, in other words, all his opponents and all his audiences, and how using various devices, including Instagram and Facebook, etc., how he builds up his support base of more than 100,000 followers. This is the stuff that sets a fighter aside from being in the business of fighting, just like any other business. Take any talent you like, but to turn it into being in the business of that talent is a much different discussion. George is here to discuss being in the business of fighting. So let's get into it. George Cambosas Jr., welcome to The Mentor, mate. I mean, it's an honour, honour to be here with you. I've wanted to talk to you for a long time. I mean, I know you mates, a lot of blokes I know, and uh, especially conk artist. Yep. How good is he? He's good. He's a genius. I love the guy. He's a great bloke. But as you know, we're doing a a month of people who are in the business of fighting. Mm. We're not necessarily here to talk about fighting as such, but we will. As you know, I'm a big fight fan. I I love the fights. Um, One of the things that drives me to love the fights is is watching the passion and the theatre and the pain and what you guys go through to get to where you want to get to, the, the drive. I mean, it's ridiculous. I mean, I just can't. I mean, most people who have never done this have no sense of it, but you know, hopefully out of these four podcasts they can get a bit of a sense out of it. But I don't 
think you anyone really knows what it's like to be in the boxing ring and to actually stand in the ring and there's no one there to fucking support you. You're on your own and you're getting whacked and you've got to make a decision whether you stay, you cop them, or you punch on, or you move out of the way, which, by the way, is very similar to being in business when you're getting battered in business for a whole lot of reasons. Like they've got no one coming in. Do they stay? Do they run away? Do they keep punching? And, and there's a lot of similarities in this and those sorts of characteristics, those things that someone like you learn and that ability to keep driving yourself. You're number three in the world now. Yep. Um, you want to get a shot at Lomachenko? Well, our next fight is obviously to become the number one in the world. Number one contender? Number one contender. Mandatory to obviously either Lomachenko or Lopez. I mean, so this is a very exciting time in our career. Well, that's pretty unbelievable. We've got an Australian talking like this. Um, that's pretty unusual. We don't get many Australians who get to that level over the last few years at least. There has been in the past, you know, many years ago, and we always wanted to come on the scene and do things different. We wanted to come on the scene and go to the US and challenge ourselves against the best. I mean, we're there. We're one fight off now, a mega fight, you know, fighting a guy in his prime unified chamber of the world. I mean, so we're so focused on this first fight with Lee Selby and we'll do the business and then we'll obviously we'll move to, you know, the big mega fight that everyone wants to see, everyone's craving to see in Australia. And I'm, I'm, I'm dying to see it. Like, I, I, I want to go back to, uh, how old are you, George, now? I'm 26. 26, okay. So you're, you're a young fella. Um, relatively speaking, but not necessarily in boxing terms, but no. you're a young fellow, but you're still pretty young actually because you're, you've gone past the youth. I think youth level is under 23 or something. The world youth title is 23. Yeah. So you're, you're only a couple of years past that. If I go right back to when you're uh, at school, you're a Sydney boy? Sydney boy, yeah. Cambosis, it's a Greek name. And uh, audience, please forgive me, but clearly we've got a thing going on here, a couple of Greeks, so we're going to talk about this shit. Uh, so you're going to have to bear with us. Mum and dad both Greek? Both Greek. Okay. Born in Greece? No, born here. Born here. Both mum and dad born here? Born here. Grandparents born in Greece. Born in Greece, right. Migrated like you know, so my many other Greeks, yeah, like your old man, mm-hmm. for a better life, to give their family a better life. And crazy enough, you know, I've sit there and speak to my grandparents and, and find out their stories. And it actually motivates me how much they've done for their family, the sacrifice. And I can relate what I'm doing now, taking my family to the US, you know, sacrificing for them. It's funny you should say that because I was, uh, last night I went to see my dad's cousin. My, so my dad's father, my papu, my grandfather, yeah. and his brothers all left Greece in the 40s and they went to Canada and the US. Um, a couple of them were accepted in those places. My grandfather was kicked out and sent to Cuba and then he, and I was only, only found this out last night, and then he yeah. came to Australia and he, to make a new life. Because it was a civil war going in Greece, uh, just around the World War period, two period, and people, it was pretty atrocious what the Greeks were doing to each other. It was a communist versus a nationalist. It was a pretty bad time. But he, you're right. He came. He he came to Australia to make a better life for his five sons. Um, my dad being one of those, um, and he did make a better life for us. And uh, to some extent, I mean, I, as growing up as a kid, I was already always caught up in that stuff. And I guess what I want to ask you is. Was that something that dominated your thinking when you're? Because when I was 15, 16, I lived with my grandmother. Like I actually was it dominated me this whole process. Yeah. My yeah, I couldn't speak any English. I had to sit there and and everything she did. She, I walk in the house in the middle of winter. She would put, turn the uh, gas fire on. Yeah, the heater on. The rest yeah. of the day, she'd turn it off, and she would walk around a long, thick coat that yeah. went down to the floor. She's about like two foot tall. She's a real little thing, big long plait, sort of really dark skinned. She wouldn't spend a dollar. When she died, she had a whole lot of money under the bed. She didn't trust the yeah. banks. She didn't trust anybody um, because she grew up in this environment. And I used to love it. I used to absolutely love it. 
And, uh, you know, and she all she was interested in making sure I was fed properly. I wake up in the morning and my shirt that I wore the day before would already be washed and ironed, waiting for me to go to university or go to, well, in those days, go to school, finish my school off and then go to university. I stay there for years. So did you experience that same thing, George? And did that inspire you? It's crazy, the, the, the culture that they have, you know, and even that they moved, you know, countries for a better life, they still held on to their, you know, their culture and, and their base of, of their lives, you know, from, from Greece. It was hard as obviously a young kid, you know, I really couldn't understand it. For me, it's hit harder now, the older I get, you know, seeing the sacrifices they made. I mean, obviously my father as well. So seeing how they moved to a better country, you know, for a better life, it it hits me harder now than what it did as a young kid. Where'd you grow up, George? Like which part of Sydney? I was in the uh, St. George area in the Southern Shire. Southern Shire, right? And you went to school where? Where'd you go? The St. George area. St. George area, yeah. And uh, brothers and sisters? I've got a sister, yeah, younger sister. Younger sister? Yeah. Uh, do you feel a sense of, um, you know, I have to look after my family? Do you still, do you, do you have that sense? Like like your dad would have been that, that way, your grandfather, grandmother mm. would have been that way. I mean, do you, do you have a sense of that? Is that a cultural 100%, sense? 100%, yeah. I think it's that cultural that's still in me that I've seen from my grandparents to obviously my father. I mean, it's still there. And I want to, you know, do as much as I can in my career, you know, make as much as I can. I mean, and give them a legacy and a name to give them. That they can be know, proud of. They can be proud of. And obviously not only my family, but, you know, the Greeks, you know, and obviously the Australians become proud of, of the person that I am, that the man that I'm represent, obviously representing around the world. So that's a big responsibility. There's a lot of responsibility in your shoulder. You're only 26. There's a lot riding on this. It is. And obviously, Australia has a few fighters, but, you know, with Greece, you know, I'm the number one guy. Obviously, I'm the number one guy here, but I've seen Greece, I'm the main fighter. I mean, so when I was over there fighting, you know, this is so patriotic. They were crying when I was coming out. They couldn't believe I was there. So for me, I hold that on my shoulders. I'm proud to, to honor both flags and have it there, you know, in the big re- in arenas in the world, you know, the major arenas. So, it's, a, it's an exciting, it, it is pressure, but I love the pressure and you know, I love having that responsibility. I, I, I want to ask you about the pressure because I just don't think people understand it is enormous pressure. Mm. It's not just what you feel emotionally, it's the amount of discipline you have to live in your life is mental. Um, so you're a lightweight fighter, explain to everybody what weight that is well, low weight is 61.2 kilos so you got to weigh in at that weight the day before day before so like four o'clock in the afternoon you got to come in on the scales at at that weight 61.2 or below yeah or below so, yeah which but you don't want to be too easy. much you don't want to be too much you, below. Yeah, you don't want to be too be- too much below you want to come right on the money yeah so what do you walk around at day so i walk around about 66 67 okay so you got to drop seven yeah. kilos and that's not easy. No, totally. You're not obviously easy. in camp. You're training, but you're physically muscled up. So, yeah. so you've got to control your muscle. Control the muscle, and that's where a good team comes into play. But I'm the ultimate professional as well. You know, I never really look at having an off season as a fighter. I'm continuing the gym. Okay, off-fight. that's interesting. I want to just explore for a second because, of course, we've seen more recently. Um, uh, Deontay Wilder got beat mm. a, a couple of weeks ago by, you know, the Gypsy King, who's, I love watching him fight. Like oh, he's, he's a madman. He's totally madman. But he's an example of somebody he could never make weight. Like he's 273 pounds or yeah. something. Um, whatever that conversion into kilos, it's a fucking huge guy. Mm. <laughs> but he can he can just be whatever weight he is. And he, he wants to get to a weight, but he's not, not, but he's yeah, not so no limited. There's no stress on him. But someone like you... You can't have an off season because if you do, it's too hard to sort of come back. If you stop training, you're probably going to walk around in your seventies. A hundred percent. Easy. 
because obviously that weight will just gain. You know, it, it will be there. You're not training. You're not losing the weight. And that's where the sacrifice, the dedication comes in. You know, you got to do things when sometimes you don't want to do it. No, but you have to. That's the but where does it come from, George? Dedication. Where, well, I mean, you go back to when you're 15, 14. I mean, was there, was there something you were doing then? Did your dad make you do something? Did he make you get up every morning and make you bed? Or where does that sense of responsibility and that discipline come from? I think it might be linked to my grandparents and you know, how hard they worked when they did come to Australia to provide for their family. And the crazy story is, obviously, I was not always the man you see today. I mean, I was a young kid. Obviously, bullied at school, overweight. So you, you you were bullied at school? Yep. Hard to believe, but yeah. I was bullied at school. Why? Because you, you were fat? I was overweight, yeah. yeah. I, was, I was a big boy. And what were you doing there? Was your mother and uh, grandma? Yeah, yeah, they're feeding you up. Well, you, know, you, know, much? you know, the Greeks, you yeah. go to your, your, your yas house and- well, I know Greek boys, they yeah, yeah, and their mum, they-, they Yeah, they want to stuff you with everything they can. And look, they still do today. Yeah, I, I go to the house and I'm making weight and they know. I've told them for so many years, I can't eat this. They said, no, no, what's wrong? You have to eat. They think I'm unhealthy. Yeah, what's they wrong with you? You're sick. Yeah, they listen, I'm not sick. <laughs> okay, just relax. I'm going through that. What's wrong with you? Yeah, yeah. But, um, you know, I mean, I think all them core values comes from there. You know what I mean? And, um, you know, crazy story is I used to play rugby league as a junior. I mean, while I was overweight, that's the reason I fell into boxing from, from uh, playing right? rugby league. I mean, to lose weight in the off season. But before the boxing, you know, the coach would say, go do your, your proper laps around the, uh, the footy field. And I'd never cheat myself. I'd come dead last. Dead last, always. And obviously my father's on the sidelines with the other parents and you know, he's, he wants to see his kid you know, up there. So in the car, and you know, my dad has always been very mentally strong. And I think that's where a lot of the uh, principles come from with the man I am today. He would say, to test me, why don't you cheat yourself a little bit? Why don't you cut the corner and come maybe second last, third last? And without me even knowing really anything, I'd, sit, I'd turn around and say to him, I'll do it the right way or pay off somewhere. And crazy now, when I'm training, when I'm doing my 10Ks, when I'm sparring 12 rounds, I will never cheat myself. I will make sure that I'm doing it 110% correct. Because I know maybe if I cheated myself back then, I definitely wouldn't be in the position I am today. But what, what, what was it, do you think, that installed in you that sense of, I'm, I'm not going to cut corners then? I mean, like m- most young kids are, fuck, oh, I'll just do it. Like, yeah. Why did you take so seriously? Have you always been a serious person? I've always, I've always been pretty serious. Hmm. And I always... Um, you know, I never grew up with really, you know, no, no cousins. You know, they were all born, you know, later. I, w- I was always hanging around with, obviously, my father and the older crowd. You know, so I think I'd, I'd listen a lot. Even though people see when I'm in front of a camera, I'm quite loud, I'm vocal. I actually listen a lot. I like to take a lot in. Um, I'm actually quite shy kind of guy. But to put the camera in my face, it'll be different. So I think from that, you know, just listening there might have, Picked up a few things as a young kid. You know, when you're young, you pick up everything. You're a sponge, especially what you see. Yeah, as opposed to what you. But they, it's not what they tell you. It's what you see, mm. you, and the, and the way you see people acting. And it's interesting that you say that you were bullied. I mean, I, I find that quite incredible to understand. Yeah. But uh, I guess that sort of stuff happens at school, unfortunately, these days. I mean, it's, it still happens. It's, it was happening back when it was even happening when I was a kid. I mean, I, when I went to school, if you were had a different surname to everybody else, or if your dad or mum had a, an accent, you were a target. Yep. And, you know, in those days you were all the wagon all the day going, all that sort of stuff. Um, and funnily enough, it <laughs> it motivated me. Yeah, and I'm in the same position. Motivated yeah. me. And, uh, and I, I must say, I, never, I didn't get bullied, but a lot of the kids around, I saw a lot of kids get bullied. Like it was, it was part of the, the environment. 
what made you decide then to take up boxing? Was it because you were bullied or was it just to get fit for the in the off-season for the footy season? It was more for the footy season to get fit. But who told you boxing? My father. He said, listen, we live in the Shire. Do you want to go do nippers? You're never going to see a 12-year-old, you know, obese, fat Greek kid running on the beach. That was never going to happen. True. I said, listen, that's not going to happen. Um, but your dad well, suggested that, did he? He did suggest that's that. Cool. And I think maybe he was playing a game. You know, he's very mentally strong. And then obviously he goes, look, you like the Rocky films? There's a, there's a boxing gym in Rockdown, PCYC. Why don't you head down there? Maybe we uh, give it a crack. The first day I went in there. And you know, obviously you've been to the Rockdown gym. The smell when you walk in there is brutal. Mm. I mean, that there could turn a, a kid away. Mm. You, know, well, you, you should explain sport. it to our audience, George, because I mean, I know what the smell like is. I'm under Wallow, but... I think it's worth explaining. I just the smell does hit you, doesn't it? Yeah, that's with any boxing gym. You so know. Describe the smell. It, it, it's like an old sweaty, mouldy you know, <laughs> smell. But you know what? Funny enough, you know, you, you grow with that smell and you love yeah. it. You know, that's, that's yeah, I that's, do that's too. Part of me. Yeah, you know, I love walking to a, into different gyms around the world. I mean, even in New York, in my last fight, we went to this old school, you know, New York gym to have a training session, and man, this this smell, you know, was was incredible. But you know, it's it's. Part of the fight game. It can be you intimidating a little bit um, for some, I guess, because you can sort of, it is a sort of a weird dank smell. It's like, as you say, it's a moldy smell. Mm. So when you went in there, what were you confronted with? How old were you, by the way? I was uh, 12 years of age. 12. So uh, what were you confronted with? Like, what do they say to you? Put, put gloves on you, hit the bag. What do they say? Skip. What was yeah, your first memory? Pretty much walking in there. I just remember seeing all these other fit kids, you know, hitting the bag, sweating. You can hear that pounding of, of the bag. And I'm looking around, I'm this obese, you know, Greek Australian kid with my father next to me. And I'm looking around, think, this is not me. This is <laughs> not, not that it's not me, but this is crazy. And you know? I'll give it a crack. And yeah, just, yeah, fell in love with him. Old man said, look, I'm going to leave you with the coach. See how you go. That's really interesting because for me, most parents wouldn't do that for their kids today because they go, oh, well, you know, George, I don't want to leave George behind. Like, I feel sorry, but is he going to be okay? But to some extent, it's I think it's a great, it's a great bit of parenting. Yeah. Just say, mate, you're on your own. Go for it. Yep. You have to adapt. And uh, you're either going to make it or you're not going to make it. Mm. I mean, there's, you don't have to – I don't think everyone should get a ribbon these days. I mean, like everyone gets a ribbon these days. You shouldn't get a ribbon unless, for me, it's first, second, third, that's it. That's right. You should get encouragement and a pat on the back and, uh, you know, and keep keep trying your best. But not we, we, we pamper everyone today. Mm. And uh, and I, I think maybe I got a lot of people are not going to like this, but – I think you get real outcomes from people who are put in a position where they have to actually rise to the top yep. and there's no fourth, fifth, sixth and tenth place where everybody gets a clap because they participated. Yep. I'm a parent. I'll, I'll give you a clap for participating. Mm. But the team doesn't need to give you a clap. The family of the whole team doesn't have to give you a clap. We need to be able to stand up on our own two feet on our own. And I mean, that's something great that your dad did. You probably don't realize it in hindsight, but mm. what your dad did is he, because now you're, you are on your own. Now you're going to go and well, fight the, the world champion. Fought, yeah, you fought, you know, on your own. Yeah. You got your team with you. You got your fans, you got your supporters, but at the end of the day, it's you and that other man. Yeah, it's totally. the rawest form of combat. There's nothing more confronting than that. And I want to ask you about that. So when did you have your first, say, amateur fight? Obviously, an amateur fight. When did you have your first amateur fight? I had my first amateur fight at 13. 13. You know, I trained for pretty much 10 months in the boxing gym. I lost 12 to 14 kilos. Wow. Which was incredible. And when I went back to the footy season, because I was still playing footy at that stage, you know, the coach didn't even recognize who I was. I was <laughs> like, this is not George. And I went from prop to hooker. My footy got better. 
and uh, obviously I was I was boxing. So um, you know, the, my old school coach back then he said, "Look, I want you to have your first amateur fight." So we had the session. I went uh, downstairs waiting for my dad to pick me up, and we sat in the car. And I go, "Listen, was it PCYC? Yeah, yeah. PCYC. I said the coach wants me to have a first amateur fight in Queensland. My dad nearly had a car crash. He turned around and said, "What do you mean? We didn't come here for fighting." Come here for, obviously, to improve your footy, which is going great. I said, no, no, I want to fight. You know, I feel good. I, I feel comfortable. Uh, I love this stuff. You know, I love this shit. And I never looked back. And, and, and so did you win your first fight? I won my first fight. Yeah. How, many, enough, amateur, how many amateurs do you have? George? I had 100 amateur fights. 100 amateur fights. 86, uh, well, 86 that, wins. That's crazy. Yep. That's a lot of amateur fights. A lot of fights. A lot of experience. And I, with all the young guys come through the amateurs, you know, I tell them, have as many fights as you can. Because you got these Europeans having four hundred plus fights. I know, like like uh, Zoo. Yeah, he, like he was a Soviet Mama champion like, as like, well. Four hundred plus fights. Ridiculous amount of amateur you fights. You want to get that experience. You want to see every different style. You know, you want to learn from your losses. You want to learn from your wins. So, but that would be like a fight every two months. Or, yeah, pretty much. Yeah, there yeah. was times where we were having tournaments. We would fight three, four times. You know, in a weekend. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because you do the amateur tournaments, yeah. which is like a knockout event. Yeah. You, you continue winning. Yeah, you just yeah. keep fighting until fighting, the end. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So I mean, most people don't realise it, but like you got to keep weighing in every day at the, at the right weight. Yeah. Like you don't get a day to recover. You don't weigh in today and fight tomorrow night. You no, weigh in you in the morning. you got to weigh in on the day. And yeah. the thing is for a 13, 14, 15-year-old kid, I mean, that's sacrifice. That's hard work. Yeah, you've got to really watch your weight. Yeah. And what when you were then young, what were you, what weight division were you fighting? Same as now? Or featherweight? No, I started, I started up to 44 kilos. Wait, so, well, and then from there, yeah, we just moved up as I grew. I mean, and that, that's a crazy discipline to have to have as a young man, like as a young teenager. And can I ask you this? As a young man, 15, 16, 17, 18 particularly, how do you resist the temptation of not going out to have a drink on a Friday night with your mates because you know you've got to train Saturday morning? It's tough. You know what I mean? When you've got your friends in our school, yeah. oh, we've got a house party. Yeah, totally. Or we're going out or you just turn 18, let's go out and have yeah. a drink. And you got sparring on a Saturday night. It's you know that sacrifice, that dedication, where a lot of people don't see that. They see the night of the fight. And I've had to go through all that. I've had to tell my mates. Listen, Have you ever fucked up? Like you ever, you know? No, no. I've always, you know what? And always my, old, made it. my old man would always say, "Listen, again, as I grew up as a young kid, he'll say there's going to be times where your mates will want to go out on a Friday night, and you're going to have to fight on a Saturday, or obviously you're going to have sparring on Saturday. And there was times where. I literally would drop, I got my car first in front of the, obviously with the whole group of friends. And I obviously took them to the party and the boys goes, aren't you coming in? I said, no, nah, I'm going to take you, keep you happy. I go, but I'm going home. I got sparring uh, Saturday morning. I mean, that's a lot of sacrifice for a 17 year old kid. Totally. To, I mean, to I, to it's funny. That. If you saw George, I mean, I remember the first time I saw George fight, it was at uh, Luna Park. Yep. I remember that night. And Actually, I, it, was before, it was before then. Oh, no, I, me, I saw it. On the footy show. So it was yeah. the footy show one before Luna Park. Yeah, one. Okay. Sonny Bill. Uh, so that's right, Sonny yeah. Bill Ford, that big fat guy. Yeah, yeah. I was um, the co-main. But like if you saw George, he's got tats all over him. He looks like a scary dude. Um, he puts on the best theatre before the fight yeah. in the rink. Like, you know, it's all part of the game. We're going to talk about that in a minute. But really what George is telling me here is, uh, and this is like a lot of fighters in Australia today, young, the younger fighters anyway, he's actually a good boy. He was yep. a good man, a good young fella, good kid, responsible kid, listened to his dad, as you just heard. He dropped his friends off mm. at the parties because he knew he either had a sparse that days or, or fight, you know, fight coming up and he had to keep weight or you just can't drink. You can't, you can't be drinking alcohol when you train like that. And you can't be having late nights either for that matter. So the perception of fighters today is based on what fighters used to be like in this country 20, 30 years ago. Yep. And the young men today 
which is one of the reasons I'm doing this series. The young men that are today that I know that are fighters are actually good young men, mm. good responsible young men, people that Australia should be proud of, people that their parents are proud of. They are superb athletes with a, like a huge sense of responsibility and discipline that they, they know what they have to do and they've got big goals. I don't think most people realise that in Australia. You know, the, the, the vision, you know, to, to get where we are today, that started so many years ago. We always had the vision. We're going to fight for a world title. We're going to win a world title. We're going to get these opportunities. We're going to fight in these big mega arenas, Madison Square Garden, you know, MGM Grand, Las Vegas, fighting arenas around the world. I mean, but there's a lot of ups and downs you know, for us to get there. And a lot of times where fights fell through, you fought for free. I mean, we had to get our local business sponsors you know, to pay for the opponent, and we fought for free. I mean, that's not easy when you're coming into the pro game and you think you're going to make some money and you're going to be fine. I mean, when you're three, four, five fights deep, you've made no money and you can't buy anything. I mean, you're trying to save your money for your training camps to eat well. I mean, that's, that's a lot of hard work. It's yeah, there's a lot of sacrifice. But again, that vision stays strong. And I was so obsessed with, with, with becoming world champion and knowing that I'm one fight away now, and it gives me goosebumps. I'm, I feel like I'm like going for a run now. <laughs> well, well, it's it's sort of quite mental, to be honest with you, because, uh, I mean, today, to become number three in the world, I reckon it's harder than it was 25 years ago. And mm. I, Jeff and all those are going to be upset with me. But the reason I say that is because there are more people in more countries in the world, particularly in the lighter weight divisions, um, like you, Mexicans, you South Americans, like, you know, you Europeans, you Eastern Europeans, they're all trying to get up. Mm. And they actually come from more desperate environments than you and I come from. A hundred percent. And you, you're not talking about Australia, where there's 22 million. You're talking about places where there's 20 million people in the city mm. and uh, they're desperate to get up. They're doing it because they need to survive yeah. pretty much. You're doing it because you're driven, you're compelled to get somewhere. Mm. They're doing it because they have to survive. And This uh, is their only thing. Yeah. And again, you know, obviously I always go back to my past. Again, there is another story there where I was playing rugby league and obviously we're, we're a shire team. You know, we obviously still have things that we're given and our parents look after us. And we came up in a tournament against the Redfern All Blacks and we got hammered. We got smashed. And my dad, in, in, on the way back home, he goes, do you know why you got beat? I go, we just weren't good enough. He goes, no. He goes, I'll let you think the whole way. For the whole trip from Redfern all the way back to the shire, I sat there thinking, thinking, thinking. I couldn't get it. I go, listen, I don't, I don't understand. You know, why did we get beat? He goes, you came up against a team that don't have what you guys have. They're hungry. I mean, they want to win. They need to win. I mean, you guys just, if you win, you win. You're yeah. still going to go home and play your PlayStation. I mean, and that there, again, sat with me. You know what? You're right. So when I came up against these different fighters, you know, from Russia, Ukraine, Armenia, uh, in the world championships, you know, different tournaments as an amateur, automatically I knew that these guys are hungry. I go, I need to be hungrier. I need to be smarter. I need to box smarter. I mean, all from them core values back then. I want to come back to you and talk about when we're going to go to the break. When I come back from the break, I want to talk about being in the business of boxing. Mm -hmm. So how you bring all those aspects into your boxing career, because at the end of the day, you've got to make money out of this. Yep. Because you've got to support a whole lot of things. You've got to pay things. So I want to talk about... The business model, like what are the elements that you are constantly working on and what do you think you can do once you achieve your great goal? So, all right, you're going to make money, but you don't want to stop work. 
you know, when you're, you're 30. Mm. I mean, you, what is the future from there on after? And uh, I want to take all the stuff that you've just been talking about, all those aspects of your character, apart from your skills, and show me the business model of a fighter. So we're back from the break. I'm here with George Cambosis Jr. And, you know, otherwise known as ferocious George Cambosis. We are talking about the being in the business of boxing, you know, and the, we, we see some of the most successful fighters in the world are in the business of boxing. I mean, clearly the Gypsy King's in the business of boxing. I mean, like he's a great entertainer. He yep. understands what he's there for. Yep. Not just for us to see his skills, but he he entertains me. I mean, I, I'll be honest with you, Deontay Wilder fucking bores me. Yep. He's boring. I mean, he comes out, tries to do it with the mask. Just doesn't work. He doesn't pull it off. Whereas... The king comes out on the throne. It, I don't know, it's something about it. He's just got something in there that it works. It just catches everyone. It, it gets me. He's got, and, you know, like uh, even Floyd Mayweather. I'll be honest with you, I, I don't like watching Mayweather fight. You know, like I'd rather watch Manny Pacquiao fight any day yeah. of the week. But Mayweather's in the business of boxing and he's in the business of being a good survivor, not getting hurt, not getting injured. To me, fight's boring, but wins. Yep. And he's, it's all about, for him, it's all about the, the, the record, 48 no, or 49 or whatever it is. Yeah, so, well, he just wants that undefeated record. Correct. And get he's made money. money get out, yeah. Take the money. So, George, in the business of boxing, you've got to pick opponents to get to number three. So you've got to be very careful that you don't get beat. That's important. Yep. So there's a, a build. But you also got to pick the right fighters to leverage yourself up and to be noticed by the big promoters. 100%. You need to take the test when they're How do you off. do that? Who advises you? Like, I mean, how does it all work? What's your team Early look like? Early in my career, it was me and my father. Right. What, did you sit down and examine all the yeah, fighters? Yeah, we, we looked at guys and said, okay, this is the perfect suit for me. I'm going to fight him. This will move me up. But why, why, why? Show me, give me an example. I mean, without, like, why would you pick someone to fight, like, based on what characteristics? You say, look, I mean, for someone like George, it's important to first get in the top 10, rank yep. in the 10, right? Or at least the 15, but then 10. But before that, why would you pick a fighter? Is it, is it because that person's been well known or they're noticed or uh, they get more pay per view or they can draw a bigger crowd or the promoters are watching this particular individual? What, what were the sort of factors that you put into play? Yeah, all them factors were there. Can he bring a crowd in? Is he marketable? Does he have some good solid wins? His losses, have they been losses where, you know, he didn't get beat up too much? You know, he fought good guys and he had a loss. Guys there that can build your career and you can leverage off them, leverage off wins like that. And that's all we done. We found the guys that were perfectly suited for us. We got through them. And then there was times where we had to take tests. We had to fight the guys that were the number one here. We wanted to prove ourselves. So is it about establishing a reputation yep. as a certain type of fighter? I think so. I yeah. think you need to you know, establish a reputation. Our plan was always to beat everyone here and move forward, but it doesn't happen straight away. You need to build because not everyone's going to take the fight. That's right. If someone's ranked above you, for example, they're like, no, they're not ready. You're That's not right. the contender, mate. I'm not going to fight you. 100%. Because they're smart. They don't want to get beat. And there's been guys where they had a lot of offers and they didn't have to fight us, but we drew them in. Yeah, how do you do that? That's that's clever. I've got a big social media base. Yep. And even back then, I had a lot of people talking and I would suck them in. I would say a few things. I would get them angry and say, well, who's this guy? Who's this young guy coming up? I've been here for so long. Why should I fight him? Yeah, I mean, I continue, and I didn't care. I done it on purpose because I draw them in. Yeah, their ego. You talking about calling him out, George? Calling him out. Yeah, and their ego would get involved instead of you know the business. So it becomes a mind game. It becomes a mind game, and they said, "Oh, you know what? I'll fight this guy," and that's it. We got him already. I know. As soon as they saw the fight, we got him. So I remember the fight at Luna Park. Give, give, take me through that. So 
I mean, that, that was a great night. My, I went with my sons and my sons follow you on, on uh, social media because mm. they love you. Um, they think you're awesome. <laughs> They're always talking about George. No, I appreciate it, yeah. And I remember that night because the fucking theatre was unbelievable. Like you look like, I don't know, you look like you were going to explode mm. pre-fight, like in the ring, like you were prancing around. I the, was pumped, yeah. You were totally pumped, but you really drew the crowd in. The crowd loved it, right? Yeah. So in terms of choosing that opponent, tell me the process you went through. Why did you choose him? Obviously, Brandon Ogilvy, he was the number one here in Australia as a lightweight. He had come off some really big wins. His name at that stage was the biggest name. I mean, so we knew for us to fight a guy like that, beat a guy like that, and beat him the way we did, would draw us in, into obviously the number one here. Would make our name huge. That guy, obviously Ogilvy, had a contract to America. I mean, he was ready to, to sign over to the US. But again, my Facebook antics, my Instagram antics, got him excited, got him a little bit too much with his ego, and eventually accepted the fight. I mean, then leading into the fight, you know, I didn't stop on social media. And um, I went overboard sometimes, but I've done it on purpose. Again, fighting is very physical, but the mental side of things is, is huge in the fight game. And again, it's the same with anything in life. I mean, if you're not mentally strong, I mean, if something, slightest thing affects your mental game, I mean, it could tumble the whole lot. I mean, everything you've worked for. And I was so mentally strong, and I've always been mentally strong, and I knew I could get into his brain. And obviously, you've seen the way that fight went. He was aggressive. He was trying to load up on big shots. I made him miss. I made him pay. And um, it was an exciting fight. Blood everywhere. Our 12 round war. You know, Sydney, Luna Park, iconic venue like that. It was awesome. And look, he was in the top 15. So was I. He was rated higher. And I knew a win like that would not only put me number one in Australia, but move me inside the top 10 in the world. Which is where you guys all want to get in the early stages. You've got to get in the top 10. 100%. And that's where you start to get the recognition from, you know, the world. Yeah. Okay, this guy's a top 10 fighter. You can get a title shot any time hmm. being inside the top 10. That was a, a really purposeful strategy that yep. you and your dad, did your dad and you work it out? Yeah, yeah. And Obviously, do you have a team, what, what do you have? Like, do you have, Who runs your Instagram? Who runs all your I social run, media? Social media is all me. You do it yourself. And I've had offers from a lot of people saying, we want to take so over. So when, when I'm looking at you on social media and I see you, you know, like you were, I saw you laying on the bag talking, talking about the grind last yeah, night. Yeah, yeah. So how do you take the photos? Like how are you doing those photos? Well, obviously a lot of them early in the piece was my partner taking yeah. the photo. I said, listen, come down to the gym. I need you to take some Instagram photos. And she's like, oh, again? I've got to come down again. I said, no, I need this. This is a mother of children. Yes, this, yeah. this, this is my, uh, my partner, yeah. my fiance. Yeah. Um, you know, I told her, look, I need you here to, to take these photos, these videos. It's important for my development. And look, she would come down to the gym, take the videos, and then I'd post them up. And early in my career, I got- So you had to learn how to do all that stuff. Yeah. I, obviously, she had to learn how to show and say, yep. look, take it from this angle. No, retake it. And by the end of it, she goes, Man, this is too many photos, too many videos, but she stuck through. And, you know, she could see as my name getting bigger and bigger, more people got excited. Man, it was all paying off. And now? Now, obviously, I have a lot more people. Yeah, yeah. If someone to take the photographs for you. Someone to take yeah. the photos. They obviously messaged me. They said, listen, we want to come shoot for you. We want to take videos for you. So we bring them in and, and they come shoot my training session. But again, still, I'm still taking my videos on my social media. So you run your own social media? I run everything. I don't want to give that away. For me, that's, I've seen it go from one follower to over 100,000 followers. Yeah, yeah, you've got that's, good that's following. That's for me, that's my, that's my baby. Yeah, you love it. Man, so I you're obsessed it. with it? I'm obsessed with it. Not to a point where it takes over my life. You know, I'm a family man. I've got my two kids. But it's your business. But it's my business. Mm. And I pick up a lot of sponsorships from there. I mean, a lot of businesses, you know, follow me from, from social media. I pick up a lot of endorsements from social media. I don't think any fighter in Australia, you know, I mean, is doing what we're doing on social so media. So George Michael sponsors you? Yes. 
George is a friend of mine. Yeah. I love George. I know he's uh, he's across from your, your yeah. Offices. Well, uh, he's um, he, he's he, he grew up in Belmore, around where his mum did. Anyway, that's I know his family from out there. Or his yep. mum, yeah. He was, he's a good boy, George. He's a good example of someone who's one of his sponsors. Mm. So George got really successful businesses. There's something that you're doing that appeals to him that allows him to sponsor you because I, I just because I want to move through this process of the business model. You need sponsors at the end of the day. You need a couple of things. If, if I might be so bold, you need sponsors. They help pay the bills on the way through. Yep, 100%. You need people to watch you, pay for view, and you need people to turn up to the fight. That's the gate. And because if you can't get those numbers, you can't attract another fighter. That's right. Because and the other fighter is going to say, well, there's nothing in it for them because you, you, you don't draw any crowds, George. And the thing is, it, it, it's such a cutthroat business where if you can't get sponsors, and we've done it in the past, where we would have to use the sponsorship money to pay for the opponent. To bring the opponent out. To, bring to the guarantee opponent out, To guarantee, Yeah, to bring them out. I mean, I, and there was times where I'd fight early in my career for, for free, you know, just to get the guy in the ring, to get that exposure, to get that name out there a little bit more. You know what I mean? So if you don't have that sponsorship, and again, that all comes from being marketable, getting totally. your social media base, being able to provide them a little bit you know, of, of social media. Okay, so you're a fighter and you're telling me, and by the way, it's 100% correct in my opinion, you're telling me that you know you you do know I watch you I love your social media I, mm. I follow you so you're telling me you're telling the audience I should say that they got to know how to use social mediums to get the story out there yep. there's a story and how to because that in turn builds sponsorship that's your revenue base that actually covers your costs ultimately you 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 make your money out of winning a big event mm. and getting to the top but also you got to be marketable you just said something you got to be marketable how do you do it how does George Cambosis Make himself marketable. What's your hypothesis, your theory on making George Cambosis marketable? Like, you know, you, we've seen Anthony Mundine, Chuck, like he made himself marketable by being a villain and, and also by making himself out to be the victim. If Chuck was sitting in now, he's a nice bloke in the world. He actually is, but he comes across as a bit of a, a widow, like, you know, when he, when he talks. In the media sense, what has George Cambosis decided to become? What is the theatre around George Cambosis? You know, if you look at all my sponsorships, they're local businesses. They're hard-earning, you know, Australians. A lot of them are Greek Australians. I mean, that can connect with a guy like myself. Yep. Who's a hard-working, you know, Greek Australian. Yep. I don't have no famous people around me. I don't have no major sponsors in, in my early in my career. And still to this day, I don't have big major sponsors behind me. I mean, but the local businesses could obviously see a young guy that was hungry. They could probably see themselves in a guy like myself. So they got behind Obviously, so you know your doing. market. And you my market. Again, with the local person, the local guy, the local kid that's that's watching, you know, this guy come up, you know, from you know, humble beginnings, from an overweight kid, from an obese kid, you know, that was bullied. You know, they can relate. There's another market for me. Obviously being a Greek, there's a lot of Greeks in Australia. A lot of obviously another Europeans. There's another market for me. And then I can fight. I'm a talented fighter. Well, you're bringing back to the fight game a bit of that ferocious shit to the fight game. Mm. Like it's I'm fucking here to fight. Yeah, and look, that's what's it, what it is. I'm not here to run. I'm not here to, to box around. I'm here to fight. I'm here to fight. Yeah. I mean, and I'll technically fight you. I mean, I'm not saying I'm going to come in crazy and throw shots from everywhere. I'm a very smart pressure fighter, but I'm a thinker too. But the way I fight, being so explosive, hmm. people want to watch. There was times that I'd be sparring, you know what I mean, in local boxing gyms. And as soon as I jump in that ring, it was crazy. The whole gym would just stop. I feel like I've always had that, that aura about me. You know, people just want to see me fight. And again, that probably comes down to the way I fight, the excitement that I bring. But it's interesting, George, that's the difference between a, a fighter and a boxer, to be honest, or someone in the, the business of fighting. It's interesting that 
you've recognised early, it's not so much the marketability of George Cambosa, but how do I make George Cambosa marketable? Yep. So you've identified with your markets. Yep. So you pick the markets, you know, it could be the Greek Australians, could be the hardworking local mm. people, et cetera, people who just like resonate with the story. Mm. Um, and you've presented the theatre to them. Yep. To some extent, theatre, the Greek theatre is a really important theatre. Um, and you've built your own little amphitheatre, you know, using Instagram and one, yeah, one device. You totally have. And, uh, you know, like if you look, I would say to anyone who's listening, go to look at George Cambosis and just go through his Instagram and have a look at how he presents himself. Um, there's some pretty horrific sort of scenes there where his face is pretty cut up, pretty bad. But equally, there's like good high quality stuff with photos with him and his two little kids yep. and his partner, his fiance. And I try to keep, I try to keep the family in away from it, in and out. Yeah. You know, I mean, I don't, I don't like to show them too much. But it's very strategic family. what you've done. You, you are a, a family man. Yeah. That's, that's important. And deep down, yeah, I'm not the guy that's out there every Friday, Saturday night partying. You're not gangster. Saying, look at me, look at me. I'm Gambosis. I'm here. That's interesting. I'm away from that. That I'm old gangster style boxer, like no. there, a lot of Americans like that. Like the, yeah. a lot of the big, there has been a lot of fighters, yeah. gangster style. Um, you've rejected that. Yeah. You're doing something different. Is that purposeful? I think that's just the way I am. You're just who that's George the way is. I'm built. That's the way I've been taught from, obviously, my family. And again, that probably goes all the way back to my grandparents. I mean, be a good, hard-earning family man. You know, provide for your family, provide for your kids, give them the best life. I mean, this is the fight game. I mean, you step into that ring. I mean, there's no guarantee you're stepping back out. I mean, so you're putting it all on the line. So my family know that I put it all on the line for them. And, um, you know, I'm there to give them you know, the best life possible. So, George, what happens post that? I mean, all right, you stand and defend your title, that sort of stuff, but what does George Cambosa want to change? What would you change in the fight game today? And because I, I noticed you've got some promotional businesses and management businesses sitting in here that's on your um, mm. profile. What's that about? Well, that's, that's, you know, that's all been set up for change. We're at a stage now of our career where we're fighting on the big arenas. We're so close to a world title fight. It's time now where we get the young fighters, get the guys that, you know, don't have that support, don't know, don't have that vision, don't have that path. And we've been through it in Australia. I mean, we know what you have to do here. What would you Adam do different Martin. though? Because, I, mean, I mean, to be honest, a lot of them get ripped off. That's, I mean, like, that's like, the main thing. I mean, you look at, look at what Morty did to Jeff Fennick. I mean, f you know, Jeff can't even get access to his own videos. Yeah. Because when Morty died, he put a thing in his will that Jeff could never get access to his own and fight. Everything. Yeah, it's crazy. Fight. Yeah. Like, you know, triple world champion. Like, what the hell? Yeah. Um, he was outmanaged mm. and outthought. And he just got in, he was just thrown in the ring and just, he got bashed. And just, yeah, and just and, fought. And won and got bashed and run. Why are you doing it different? What, what is it that you would do different for these good fighters? The thing is, I'm with, obviously, my father is overlooking everything for us promotions as well. Now, we've been in this, in this situation. We've been negotiating with different promoters here in Australia. And we know that they want to line their own pockets. Mm. We know that. But when you've got a marketable fighter coming in, and obviously we got our first guy signed, you know, and he's bringing seven oh, tables. Oh, is that, that uh, Eleftherios? That's, yeah. Another, uh, Terry. Terry, another yeah. good Greek boy. And they're coming through, represent Australia in the Commonwealth Games. So how old is Terry? Cause, I mean, he, Terry's he, a little bit older. He's 27. Yeah, because yeah, he he's, he's his first pro fight coming up. his first pro yeah, fight yeah, coming yeah. up. I've heard a lot about him. Yeah, very good fighter. And, you know, he's gone and sold, you know, seven, eight tables on his first pro fight. I don't think there's ever been an Australian fighter, you know, probably ever, sell that many tables in his pro debut. Um, over 100 generals now. If we don't negotiate right with the promoter and get the right percentages, I mean, the kid's going to walk away with, you know, a couple grand. Yeah. And obviously the promoter's going to fill his pocket and say, how good was that? So you guys putting the fight on? No, we're not putting the fight. We've obviously put him to another promoter yep. to put the fight on. But eventually that's the end game. Yeah. Where we're doing our own shows. We're promoting 
our fighters on our promotional company. But the end game is, you know, for me to get that world title, bring it back here to Australia and fill the whole card with my fighters and pay them the right money, give them the right exposure. I mean, show them the right road for them to eventually one day be in the same position and win that world title. Because one, one of the things I want to say to the audience, like I've been watching fights for, for a long, long time and I have to say there is in this country, including UFC, but I, I'm more close to the boxing, but we've got a lot of good, apart from being great athletes and great fighters, actually good young men and women. Good, I largely know the men, but good young men who are decent, non-gangster, they might look a bit scary, but they're non-gangster, good family people who actually want to win on a world stage yeah. and represent this country. It's fantastic. Well, actually, the fight games have become really more popular. I, I think actually boxing in particular has changed. It they're has. more relatable because they're more family people, but just more, they're not out there doing weird stuff, you I know? I think, yeah, you have, you have them certain characters, guys like myself, where they're more relatable, relatable to, you know, the average person. I mean, but again, I think social media is huge too. Yeah, because we get a better look at you. You get a better look, you yeah. get a better insight. Yeah, we're not just seeing you walk in the ring, walk out of the ring with the theatre. Right. We're seeing a lot more stuff. Guys like Fennec, Costa yeah. back then, they never had that. They never had a chance, no. So you couldn't really see in depth unless it was a big documentary yeah. or, or show on mainstream TV. Yeah, yeah, that's true, 100% right. Yeah, I can put, you know, a documentary, throw yeah. it on YouTube, throw it on my social media, yeah. and a million people might see it. Yeah. I mean, there's been documentaries where we put up you know, it's hit nearly 2 million plus views. That's 2 million people around the world, not just Australia, not just Sydney, around the world that's getting to see me. I mean, that opens up, you know, so many more avenues. Can you just talk about your training environment now, where you're training, who's your coach? So now I'm training in, uh, in Miami. You know, I've done my hard work here in Australia. What about here in Australia? Who do you train with here in Australia? Here in Australia, I've got some different different trainers. Obviously, I'm with uh, Gary St. Clair. He mm -hmm. helps me out, former world champion. Yep. Um, I've got some other guys. Obviously, Chris Backus has been around for a long time with me. Uh, Mirawani, my, my strength conditioning coach. I mean, all these guys have been helping me out here, but my main camps are now in Miami. I mean, I'm over there. I've got my head coach, Javier Centina, uh, my American manager, Peter Khan, you know, my advisor, Australian manager, my dad, Jim Cambosis, um, and my promoter, Lou DeBella. And we don't have a massive team, I mean, but we've got a team that works. We've got a team that knows the direction we're going in. And um, look, I'm already in great condition. I've been training hard here. Um, this is where all the fun really begins when I get to the US. The main sparring, get the good sparring partners, former world champions, contenders, prospects, and you know, we're throwing them all in. How important is that in the last last eight weeks is to get the best sparring? You're not going to get it here. Um, well, you, you, you do get it here. You can get it here, I guess, but like it's a much bigger range of people in the US. There's a bigger range over there. You know, The quality is, is way different to here, and that's why we, we sacrifice to go over there. I don't have to go, you know, I'm not obliged to go over to the US and train. I can do my camp here, but I know the quality's not here. And that there is going to risk me, my fights, and I won't be fully prepared. So I sacrifice to go over there. I take my whole family with me. I take my two kids with me. I mean, that's hard work in itself. You know, packing the bags totally. and leaving for you know, the little kids. two and a half, three months. They're under three years of yeah, age. Yeah, yeah. And I've got a newborn son. I mean, and we've done it for the last fight. We took him over. And, do you, and, and George, uh, can you comment because this is a big to me it's an important comment today when you're sparring because people think of boxers are punch drunk and don't know i mean if you're anyone's listening to this you know you can see george not punch drunk and he's out he's over 100 a amateur fights, fights a lot of sparring how many pro fights, fights? Have 18 professional 18, fights. 18 is, he hasn't lost any pro fights he's had 18 pro fights yep. um he's had a, over 100 uh, amateur fights 
and, um, over, and sp- you know, so sparring, many sparring. Oh, like sparring is like just ridiculous. It's just a quick one, 250 rounds with Manny Pacquiao. There you go. Manny Pacquiao, 250 rounds you've done with Manny yeah, Pacquiao. Pacquiao. Wow. I mean, to me, Manny Pacquiao was one of the greatest fighters. To me, yeah. one of the greatest and fighters of all time. Yeah, I just, I think he's awesome. What do you think about sparring today? Like, what would you say to people? People worry, oh, well, you know, all that fighting. I mean, like, sparring is, it's, it's fairly purposeful. You're very strategic in how you spar today. Yeah. You just don't go on there and just whack around and, you know, you, you know what you're going in for and you make sure you manage or maintain the intellect mm. and the and the the structure of what's going on inside your head because yeah. you need in the fight the most important thing is your brain. Of course, you need to be able to make fast movements, fast adjustments. You know, I mean, you got to be sharp. You know, I mean, not only physically but mentally. You know, in the fight camp, and that again comes to your sparring as well. You can't be sparring three, four times a week no. against heavy hitters, which is what they guys. used to do, and that's old school. That's yeah. why so many old school fighters. I mean, you talk to them and you can't even understand them. Yep, hundred percent. I'm against that. I've done it early in my career. And I said, I'm going to change this. I'm not going to do that. I'm going to spar twice a week, get good solid sparring, get sharp rounds. Get nice controlled. Yeah, everything's controlled. And we pick moments where we're going to spar at 110%, mm. but then there's moments where we're working on game plan. Working nice on to light spar. Yeah. You're, it's picking more, spots. Look, we know how to fight. I've had mm. 118 fights. I mean, the coach is going to change little bits and pieces, implement things to my game, but he's not going to teach me how to fight. I mm. know that. All right, so there's no point in me sparring and trying to you know, destroy myself in sparring. I mean, so it's all about the timing, you know, being patient, picking the right shots, the right combinations, and I feel fresh. I feel sharp when I come to the fight. I mean, I'm not burnt out. I just want the audience to know that, like, like in any business, this is the business of fighting. It's a tough business. <laughs> I mean, you are there you, to a large extent. You're, you're out there on your own at the end of the day because you're the product. But like in any business, you've got to be very strategic about everything you do. Yep. And George is. He's only 26, 27? 20, yeah, 26 of 26 age. 26 of age. I don't know where the hell he gets his maturity from, but he's worked out a process which suits him and his team in order to get into his end goal, which is to become world champion, and then build a business around it that's going to provide for your family. And But every single step in this process has been strategically thought through. Every single step. Yep. What you're going to do today, what you do tomorrow, you're going to go to Miami on Saturday – like your training regime. Well, give me an example of training regime. You get up five o'clock in the morning. What do you yeah, do? Well, everything's very structured. And ah, I love that word structure. And I, I know you love. I know you love that word. Obviously, to be where you are today, you would have had to have a lot of structure. I still do, George. And I live my life by it. And it's very important, especially when you're a professional athlete. You know, you can't just fluke it and say oh, we're going to do this or we're going to run here or we'll train here. I mean, five, five thirty, you're up. You're on the road. Even from the structure of the right food, the nutrition, and the rest, the recovery, everything has to be done right. I mean, so we're running in the morning. Then we go into strength conditioning. In between, you're eating right. I mean, after that, you're in your boxing, your sparring, your pad work, I mean, your bag work, game plans. Then you got your recovery, feeling fresh because you got to do it all again. And obviously for myself, I'm going home and I'm spending time with the family. So yeah. it doesn't end for me. Your baby's I got the babies. Sick. I got the babies screaming and crying and I mean, spending time with them. And even in the last fight, you know, we're at Madison Square Garden, New York. My little daughter got really sick, you know, two days before the fight. So I started stressing about, is she okay? I want to make sure she's okay before even me worrying about the fight. And I said, that's all the, uh, you know, the factors and obviously. But it's like any business, mate, we're all the same. You're always going to have hurdles. You're yeah. going to have things that pop up last minute. Yeah. I think, all right, how do I adjust? How do I change? You might prepare for a certain fighter and you've watched so many tapes and you think that's the way the fight's going to go. Come round one, it's totally different. How do you adjust? You sit there and just say, okay, I'm going to let this guy do what he wants or you adjust quickly and start bringing your game plan back into it and work him out and figure him out. 
I'm a fighter that loves to adjust. I'm very good at adjusting. And whatever comes at me and thrown at me, I'll find a way. It's like everyone in business. You've got to eat that stuff up. you got to actually enjoy making changes. So, George, I mean, I, I don't know if you've got a question you want to ask me. You've got a question you want to ask me? Well, the, the question would be, obviously, you know my story and obviously how close we are to that world title fight now. I mean, if you were in my shoes, away from the boxing, how would you take to the next level? You know, it's already pretty structured, but, you know, to become mainstream, you know, to have everybody, you know, knowing who I am, to, to be able to fill out bigger arenas. It's a good question. So if your question, but there's a few questions in there. So th I think the main question that you're asking me is ultimately, how do I fill arenas? Ultimately, how do I get more pay per view? Um, and ultimately, how do I turn this into a really big earn? Mm. You know, it could be nice to make 10, 20, 30 million bucks out, yeah. out of one of these things. Because you're, you know, you're effectively standing in the ring against the world's best. Yeah. And how do you get people to be attracted to you? I think it's not about the night. I think it's about the build-up to the night. The Gypsy King, I can only take a proxy to who I think is the best at promoting these sorts of things. And if I look at what he did as a proxy to what you could do, his social mediums, they are brilliant. Yep. And he shows us, like, he, just fucking around, like where he's dancing before the fight. Yeah. Um, not saying you have to adopt what he's done, but the process of him being accessible to the public and giving us a good look inside. I'm watching the fight because I, I love to see the skill, but I, I love the theatre of it all. Yep. That's why boxing fans love the theatre of it all. I don't really want to see anyone get hurt, to be honest with you. Um, I mean, I, I'm happy if they get knocked out, but I don't want to see – I'm not looking for blood and guts and shit like that. I'm just – I'm looking for the theatre of it all. So in order to do that, actors must give me access, and you're uh, you're acting out here. I mean, you're not acting when you're in the ring, but you're actually – everything up to that point, you're acting out. It's nearly like a – an anti-climax once the fight's on. It's everything in the lead up to the yep. fight. So the best proxy for probably, to me, currently one of the most successful people to, to do this sort of stuff is the Gypsy King. I mean, he's he's got a name, you know, like people don't call him by his name. They call him by, they, they call him the Gypsy King. Like mm. he's got something else going. Yeah. He's a gypsy. And when people call him the King, I mean, that attracts more. Totally. And he's got a story beyond that. His uncle was the, uh, the King of the Gypsies, mm. you know, and his grandfather or something like that. So he's got a story about it. He plays to it. Your ferocious George Cambosis, you I mean you are playing to the and you're you're playing to the Greek community. That's a big deal. Yeah. Like you're you're playing to your heritage. I like that Spartan stuff you talk about, mm. but I think that's got more more legs in it. Yeah, you got more. this. There's more build in it. Mm. I mean, I I see a lot of stuff on here about you grinding out and doing the hard work. I get that. The Gypsy King does that, but you notice he also he plays the Gypsy King stuff. Mm. Like he's a singer and he fucks around, sells poems, yeah. and he mucks around. I mean, I guess to some extent he's a modern-day Muhammad Ali. Yeah. And Shows a different side. He, he, totally. He gives me something completely different than a fighter. You're doing a lot of the stuff around you being a fighter. Yep. I wonder whether or not there is just you, – you're you're there. You're nearly there you, to me, like just one mm. more leg. What is it about your your backstory or your parents' heritage or that drives you closer to being one of the one of the greatest stories of all time, the 300, the mm. 300 Spartans fighting the, the Persians. Yeah. What is it that draws you closer to that? And what is it that society, we want to see that sometimes 300 can beat the odds. That's right. Sometimes someone like George Kambosis can beat the odds. The odds being, how's a kid from the Shire in Sydney? He was overweight and bullied. Overweight and bullied. Get, there's not much of that on your, your social medias. Mm. How does that person get to stand in the big dance. That is, that's a global 
discussion. That's something that everybody was interested in. Mm. How did that happen? That's a big story. That's a Mexican story. That's why we love the Mexicans because yeah. they, they do that. I want to hear the story. Yeah. More of that. I mean, I, you know, like grandma, yeah, yeah. Is she still alive? Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah, they all are, yeah. Yeah, well, photograph of the family. Mm. Like uh, what do they look like when they first came out in the 48? Well, whatever it is, they came out here. Well, what's the story here? Like who's this kid? I mean, apart from being a, a good fighter and uh, really committed and focused, what's the other story? What's the theatrical Where's story? Where's all about? the other leads? Yeah. yeah, what is it? That's powerful. Yeah. Good luck, mate. I appreciate so it. So good you came in. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.